0: Welcome to One More Thing Before You Go. In this episode, we're going to learn what an Anamkara is and why they are an essential and integral part of our spiritual development. We're also going to learn how that soul friend can guide us in understanding what our dreams are saying to us, how to listen to their guidance, and how to help move our lives forward. I'm your host, Michael Hurst, and this is The Thing About What Your Dreams Are Saying to You. My guest in this episode is Will Sharon. He holds a Master of Social Work degree and has been working with dreams since he was a young therapist at, at the Veterans Administration in Manhattan. Following 13 years of clinical work, Will spent some time studying acting and working in New York City on soap operas. As a coach in an Anam cara, he helps his clients understand the messages from the dreams within the context of the idea that dreaming is a very ordinary human experience. Welcome to the show, Will.
1: Thanks so much. I appreciate being here.
0: I'm intrigued about what we get ready that we're getting ready to talk about. I think it's a very interesting subject.
1: Cool. Great.
0: Can you tell me just a little bit more about yourself and your background?
1: Well, um it's uh, it's been quite a journey, and and people always look at my resume and say, "Well, how did you you know go from being an actor to being you know the chief operating officer for corporate real estate at J.P. Morgan to so on and so on and so on?" Right? I don't really have a good explanation, um, <laughs> except that um, I just sort of paid attention, and the next thing that came up that seemed interesting—that's uh, kind of been my journey. And you know, now when you get a little time on the planet and you look back, you can sort of see how things knit together and that you've been on a path. But I, I will confess to you freely that I don't know how I got to one from one thing to the other as I was doing it. But these days, for about the last five years after I became a certified coach, I have been working with my clients' dreams and I've been teaching other coaches how to work with dreams. And we can get into it, but it's it's very different from the work I do as a therapist uh, with dreams. So
0: that's interesting. What is an Anam Kara in
1: specific? Well, it really comes from John O'Donoghue's book uh, by the same title. And it's Gaelic. Anam means soul, Kara means friend, soul friend. So a soul friend is someone who sees the essence of who you are, sees past your personality into the essence of who you really are. And in the Celtic tradition, they were your friend for life. They would not let go of that. Regardless of you know what nonsense you happen to get yourself into, refusing to be on your soul's path, which we all do, Um, and so it it sort of resonates with me more than the idea of therapist or coach. Not that those titles aren't don't work, but for me, it it feels more like my job is to really see the essence of who somebody is, which is not a moment to you know it's not once I get it I'm done. It's it's a dynamic experience and just hang on to that
0: that's important i believe in mind body and soul and i think that we're all connected in some form or another throughout our lives um and soul connected yeah several conversations i've had in the past i believe that we all we all have some sort of a connection especially on the soul level absolutely absolutely so as a coach i know you said earlier that you're going to do this as a totality but how did you become a coach tell me your journey
1: well my corporate career ended somewhat abruptly uh, when I got fired for the first time in my life, I was the Chief Information Officer for a very large advertising agency at the time. It was called McCann World group. And um it took me about five years to understand that that part of my life was over. And once that happened, I also realized that you know I was at an age and I had no health insurance. So I thought, okay, well, what's the best way to stay healthy? i thought well i'll I'll go back to the gym. I'd always worked in gyms and and I called up a guy I knew and said, you know, I'm, I'm a little long in the tooth, but do you think I could become a personal trainer?" He said, "Absolutely. You'd be great. You know, we have a lot of older clients." So that's the first step of me getting back into working with people one-on-one and getting people back into their bodies, which interestingly enough is a much more emotional experience than it is a physical experience for a lot of people. And that led me to think, "Well, you know, maybe I should get back into the kind of work I used to do when I was at the Veterans Administration." So the truth is that when i went to look at what it would take to recertify my master's degree it was over 2 years and supervision all kinds of hours somebody said don't do that get a coaching certificate now i had no idea what a coach was but it was 9 months as opposed to 2 years that, that seemed like a no-brainer <laughs> right but here's the thing what what was a real eye opener for me is that as a coach I don't start with the problem. I mean, when I was at the VA, literally, we would have something called the presenting problem. What's the patient's presenting problem, right? And we would start to work the problem. In coaching, we say, well, you don't have a problem. You have an agenda. You don't like the way this is going, whatever it is, your job, your relationship, whatever, right? And yes, we do spend some time initially understanding what it is that you don't like, but very quickly you move into, well, okay, what do you want, right? Very different process, which changed the way I thought about dreams.
0: Had you um, always been, I mean, it, um, the, some of your bio that I that you sent to me, you said that you had been um, dealing with dreams for quite some time and learning about dreams, correct?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And And I think, you know, there are different phases in anything you learn. And so... When I was a therapist, it was sort of the classical analytic model. So for example, we do dream interpretation. Well, what does that really mean? That means you come tell me what your experience is and I tell you what it means, all right? So my perspective on that has changed from the standpoint of, well, first of all, it's not my dream, right? How could I possibly tell you what it meant when it's not mine? So my job is not to tell you what your experience is. My job is to immerse you in your own experience, to animate that experience, to give it dimension, to ask you a lot of questions about it, at which point a message begins to materialize. And one of the things that I think is a big shift in the the way that I work is that I'm saying to people, look. If you analyze a dream and you get meaning out of it, you're going to discard the dream. You don't need it anymore. You got the meaning, right? If you go back into your dream two or three or four times over the course of a week, it will inform you. It's speaking to you in a different language. It is not the language of your cognition. It is the language of your heart, for lack of a better descriptor. And as you listen to it, things will come up. So stop thinking. Go back into it experience it. Sometimes it's uncomfortable. Sometimes these are not happy experiences in dreams. But if you allow yourself to be immersed in it, you'll understand what you're trying to tell yourself because that's what your dream is. It's not me. It's you telling yourself what it is you need to hear to step into the next larger version. Do do we we all as human beings,
0: do we all dream?
1: Well, that's an interesting question. I mean, if you look at the neuroscience of it, The answer is yes, we have brain activity, except for a very tiny percentage of us who have a very specific kind of brain injury. We have brain activity every night, two or three times a night, that is associated with dreaming. Um, The issue is, do we remember? I was gonna
0: ask, you. sometimes I remember my dreams very vividly, sometimes I don't, or I remember bits and pieces. And then I spend the morning going, what's that? I still remember part of it, I wanna know the rest.
1: Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, well, here's, I, I guess the, 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 there's two things I want to say about that. First of all, you know, sometimes people hear about my work and say, you know, gee, I'd love to work with you, but I don't remember my dreams. And my response is, make an appointment. Right. Now, that sounds sort of self serving, but the, the magic here is this there's a part of that person who does not have an audience for this experience called dreaming. Right. Now, They have written in their calendar, okay, next Wednesday, I'm gonna talk to this guy, Will, about a dream, right? So now that part of them that dreams goes, oh, hey, we got an audience here. There's somebody who wants to listen to this. And I will tell you, it has never failed. They show up with a dream. So part of it is that you create an expectation, you create an audience, you Mm -hmm. tell someone else, right? Yeah. The other thing about it, and this is my experience as well, I will go through periods of intense dreaming. I'll go through, sometimes I'll have four and five dreams a night, which is exhausting, right? And then I won't. Now, am I still having that brain activity? I guess so, yeah. But I think it's it has to do with if you're paying attention to your dreams, there's some action that's required. Now, it could be go do something. It could be think differently about this. It, it doesn't necessarily have to be some physical thing that you do, but it has to be an intentional thing because there's a feedback loop, Right. It's like your waking life and your sleeping life are two schools, day school and night school, and they talk to each other. It's not, but, but they're not going to talk unless somebody's on the other side of that conversation, right? So that's why I think we dream and then we don't remember our dreams for a bit. Now, do
0: you think that does every dream, now? these are just questions obviously that are popping into my head as we have our discussion, do you think that um, every dream has to have a specific reason for having it, whether it be for an answer or a solution, or could it just be for relaxation or enjoyment?
1: Uh, Okay. It's funny. I have two answers to that question. (laughs) Um, Sometimes you will have a dream that is just fun, uh, or sometimes you will have a dream that just sort of confirms where your head is at right most of the dreams that i deal with are in a bit, little bit of a different category most of the dreams i'm dealing with are dreams that are showing you how you are organizing your experience with the implicit question is this what you want okay so you'll have a dream about a guy who who has a choice to marry the boss's daughter and get a big promotion or to leave and get in his car and drive away right and in the dream, he chooses to leave and get in his car and drive away. Now, intellectually, this guy was in the process of changing his career, okay? He was working in financial services and there's a whole story behind that, right? And and felt as though he was making a deal that he didn't want to make with himself. Okay. That's an intellectual thought. Now the dream comes along, gives you a story, right? And the story... Has a whole emotional arc to it. And all of a sudden now, that idea, that intellectual idea you had becomes visceral. It becomes, oh yeah, this is, now I understand why, right? So those dreams always happen as you are ready to hear them. It's like in a conversation with somebody you know, you know, and you're thinking, well, I'd like to say this, but I know they can't hear it yet. So, I'm going to keep my mouth shut because what's the point, you know? Um, and then they're ready at some point to hear it. And, and I think that's what most dreams are doing, is they are kind of guiding us towards who we really what about,
0: are. What about, and maybe I'm just kind of going off the wall here, but what about with so many dreams about uh, being in a, a uh, another life or you find yourself in a position like in the 30s or the 40s, for example? Um when you when you come across something like that does it i did a lot of i did some research prior to us, our conversation here just kind of in regard to generalizations how people interpret dreams you know, most people you can buy a book and you can open mm-hmm. the book and it says, i dream about a turtle and it says this well that's kind of generalized i dream yeah, about you know right. the blue sky or purple sky this is what this says and i i agree with what you i think that everything has a deeper meaning to it so if you're dreaming about something mm-hmm. Like, um, let's say, uh, back in the 30s or the 40s, when I've never lived in the 30s and the 40s, you know, uh, how do you deal with something like that when somebody brings that to you?
1: Um, Well, so let me answer it this way: Uh, You are the writer, director, and an executive producer of your dreams. Now, when I say you, you and I don't experience that in our waking lives. But the fact of the matter is, we create these stories. Right. And so that's one thing. The other thing is that your soul is kind of a pack rat. Right. And imagine if you were casting a movie and it was a low budget movie and you had to like choose the sets in your town and the people in your town and you kind of just shove them in there and make the story. Now you're going to do it with a purpose. You may, Uncle Frank may be in your, mo- in your movie because Uncle Frank represents something to you. Just like the period of the 30s and the 40s may represent something to you, maybe a movie you saw, maybe an idea you have about what life was like then, these are all your own personal associations that come from your own creativity. Because that's what I think ultimately dreams are. They're They're our imagination. We've imagined these stories to talk to ourselves. So yes, you could buy a book. Um, but what are you doing when you buy the book? You're just quote interpreting. You are you're making yourself feel more comfortable by intellectualizing something that isn't part of your intellectual that experience,
0: right? That makes sense. Actually, so the process that you developed. Tell me about that process that you developed
1: and how, and how it fits. Well, I took. Th- yeah, I took the fundamentals of coaching, right? And so there's a container that says everybody is naturally whole, creative, and resourceful. Okay, so we all have the ability to solve our own problems, right? And the reason coaching came to that view is the other one view takes a long time, you know, working on the problem and going to somebody else to try and tell you what to do. okay. That's one idea. The second idea is, well, that's great, but what do you do? Well, the, the two basic tools of coaching is listening, not the easiest skill that you know we have in this culture, and asking a lot of questions, and asking a lot of questions without an agenda. So for example, if I've been working with a client for a while, I don't know, three, four months, whatever it is, and they tell me a dream, and I have this little voice in my head that goes, oh, I know what this is. I stop because I'm not ready to work because now I've gotten my ego involved that I'm such a smart cat here that I can figure this out, right? Well, that's that's of no use. Um, so I have to stay in a place that says, okay, man, I have no idea what this means. Let's find out. Let's see, you know? And if I'm in that place, then because I have – worked with a client for several months, I can try things out. I can say, well, okay, here's what's coming up in me based on this other dream you had. Does that work for you? And I'll tell you, man, it's really interesting. Sometimes I get, no, <laughs> it doesn't. And that's as useful as somebody saying yes, because now we've gotten even more aligned in this story that's not making any sense to us. We know it's not that, okay? Okay. So now we kind of go in a different direction. And so that's really, and, and you know, I, I'm going to do a workshop tomorrow. It's like I always say to people, look, you already know how to do this, right? I could stop here. I'm going to tell you a little bit more. But ultimately, as a coach, you know how to do that's
0: this. That's interesting, actually. So you had mentioned um, in some of the, the stuff that you had uh, sent to me that you believe that in keeping the dream alive, you believe that it will inform the client over time of, of something. And I'm, it kind of relates to the same thing that you just talked about. Uh, So typically when you're working with somebody, they come to you with a problem or do they come to you and say, I'm having these weird dreams. Can you tell me what they mean?
1: Usually a combination of both. Uh, So let me try this. We all have the concept of fate and destiny. So fate is the story that we've been told about who we are, or it's the story we've made up about who we are. And we told ourselves Over and over and over, so much that we pretty much believe it. But there's a little bit of a rattle. There's a little bit of a something that doesn't quite feel right. Okay. So that's one way that a client will come to me. Another way is if we look at the other word, destiny, what's destiny? Well, destiny is what you betray if you insist on your fate. Okay. So if you insist on the story that you've been told or the story you're telling yourself, then you don't step into your destiny. And you know the problem with with the language we have is is destiny and fate are nouns, right? So they sound like things. They're not. It's a dynamic process. You're constantly moving back and forth from taking a chance, stepping into something new and unknown and then creating a story around it to support it, right? And working that story for a while. So I mean, I'll give you an example. There's a woman who came to me who, uh, she's an artist and a singer, and she wanted to earn her living as an artist and a singer. She's all her friends are doing it, right? So we started with that, right? Where her dreams led us were the idea that she has an expectation of the men in her life that, let's just say, are, is not a very high expectation, and her dreams were basically saying, okay, you want to be this singer and artist, guess what? You got to change your expectations of the people around you. They may not take the invitation, that's irrelevant, but you need to change your expectations. So, and that was, a. I mean, I tell that story because I remember working on that dream and going, oh my God, look at this. It's like, you can't just do the one thing you showed up and said, this is what I want, right? Right the other stuff shows up too. Inevitable. <laughs> so you, gr- it, yeah, so you grow, you know, sort of not linearly, but exponentially. That's really interesting,
0: actually. So where did you, where did you learn to interpret those kind of dreams? Where did you learn that? I mean, how did you learn that? Was that something that kind of came naturally to you? Or is that something that somebody, is that a taught? Or is that something that that subconsciously, I, I don't want to
1: say subconsciously, might be the wrong word, well, we can talk about subconscious and unconscious, but I guess you know when you ask the question, what comes up in me is this, and it's it's actually it's a story that's in the introduction to the book. Um, I started out as a teacher in a psychiatric hospital on a locked ward with boys from the age of four to eleven, and my job was to teach these kids how to read. And so, I didn't know anything about that. So, I went to school and I learned about phonics and sight vocabularies and flashcards, all kinds of stuff, right? And I would come in and I would try this stuff. I got nowhere, nothing, right? They were not interested. And then one day, my car broke down and I had to take the bus to work. And I'm standing at the bus stop and there's a newsstand there. And on impulse, I bought a dozen copies of the Daily News. It's a newspaper still in New York, right? And I go... Into class, and I turn it sports page up on everybody's desk, and I say, Okay, who's that a picture of? And they all said, Clyde, which is a guy named Walt Frazier, who was a great basketball player in New York. I said, You want to learn how to read about Clyde? Yeah. Okay. So from then on, they started telling me what they wanted to read, not what I thought they should read. And the lesson that was a big lesson to me, which is, You got to ask, you know, because you don't know what the hell anybody wants to do unless you ask. And so, if you take that experience and you say, well, okay, how did I get to where I am? That's kind of a seminal experience. It's like I realized the power in allowing somebody to say what they want. Eros, I want this, right? You don't give people an opportunity to that if you're telling them, what it is they should and do. It would be an amazing mean.
0: feeling to to be able to to see that transpire in front of you and yeah, incredible, oh, make so great. good inside.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, these were kids who, I mean, they had a rough deal, right? And there was a spark in that moment where, and they kept me hopping. I mean, it was like books on how do the subways work and what's the difference between the sun and the moon and Aesop's fables where we had debates, you know, about, whether That's the amazing. guys did the right thing. That's or Fox, amazing. Whatever. That's pretty really cool. Yeah. Right. Uh, you know,
0: it's, you uh, it, it make me feel good because you inspired these kids in, of it that they didn't have that inspiration prior to that. And if it wasn't for you, they may never have had that inspiration. So
1: well done. Well done. Well, thank you. I mean, I, I you know, stumbled into we it. We into stuff <laughs> in life
0: and it was at the right place in the right time. At the right place in the right time. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Numerous times I, and found myself at the right place in the right time, and uh, luckily I changed a few people's lives along the way in my old career, so, uh, you know, I just happened to yeah, be in the right, right place at Not the right bad. time. So that's, well done. that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. by seeing the experience of a dreaming as an ordinary experience, does that allow us to, like, uh, better appreciate?
1: I think so. I mean, so we touched on... Uh, Let's explore this idea of subconscious and unconscious, right? So, you know, I got a clinical degree and I was a therapist and blah, blah, blah. And then fast forward, and now I'm teaching other coaches, right? And I noticed that they're using these words subconscious and unconscious. So am I, interchangeably. And I thought, I don't know the difference. I think I'm supposed to know the difference, right? I'm teaching this. So I looked it up. Turns out there's a guy named Pierre Genet who came up with the term subconscious. Never heard of him. There's two things about this. First of all, he said that beneath the activities of the conscious mind lay this powerful experience, right? So we got to look at that. The conscious mind, he associated with thinking. So at the beginning of the 20th century, we conflated cognition with consciousness. If we can think about it, it's conscious. If we can't think about it, it's subconscious, as in less conscious, okay? So Freud was a contemporary of his, and Freud thought that was fine, and that was great, and he wrote about it and talked about it. And then at a conference in 1913, Janae got up and said, you know, this guy Freud, he keeps taking my ideas and renaming them and calling them his own. Well, needless to say, Freud was not happy about that. And very shortly thereafter, he said, it's not subconscious, it's unconscious. And it's the place of, you know, all these things we don't want to think about or feel. Okay. So now we have two different words, they're talking about an aspect of our experience that at the very least is less accessible, right? It's it's something that we have no control over and you got to worry about what thoughts you put in there because they could run amok and all this kind of stuff, right? And as I continue to teach, I thought, you know, I understand why we did that. I mean, the metaphor for these guys was the machine, not the computer, right? The machine has pieces and parts, Right. Okay, so I get that. You know, I'm not on a crusade here, but here's a thought. I'm not sure those those ideas are useful anymore. Okay, we are conscious beings, all of us, even that guy, every single one of us are conscious beings. The difference, the difference among us is how aware we are, not somebody's more conscious or less conscious. We go down that road, we're gonna have all kinds of problems. How aware we are, how engaged we are with our experience. Okay, so. Um, the reason I keep saying to people that dreams are ordinary, uh, I want them to get the idea that there's nothing mystical or magical about dreaming. Being a human being is pretty mystical and magical, but not dreaming. Dreaming is just the way you're talking to yourself and that makes it more accessible.
0: That's an interesting analogy. I like that. It, um, and I, when I was getting my master's degree, I had to study the same philosophies that you had and the philosophers and the same Freud. And mm-hmm. all of them, young, you know, uh-huh. any number of long yes. lists from years ago. And I always liked looking, you know, we evolve as human beings, and we always have evolved as human beings. And some of those are type typing mm-hmm. it is, is changed. I think that our, our brains have changed, the way we think has changed a little bit, and we've evolved. So I agree with you mm-hmm. in that regard. And in that respect, obviously, I think—and correct me if I'm wrong—but our dreams then are are they become more relevant than?
1: Yeah, lives correct. Yeah, absolutely they do. Yeah, and I I think you know when you when you look at the functionality of thinking in the context of being a conscious human being, it's a relatively narrow band. Right. I had a teacher who once said to me, um, "The thinking needs to be the gardening tool of the soul. In other words, you need to understand the essence of who you are, and the thinking allows you to manifest." Right. But when we use thinking without that container, it runs amuck. I mean, look around. It's like. We can think up anything, right? We can rationalize anything. We can make things that are not okay okay, because we just put together a, a sort of mental argument for ourselves of why things are the way they are. Mm-hmm. But when you come from the place of who you are, first of all, I say to people, you you realize you stop deciding things. Everything becomes obvious. You know, what, what you need to do is obvious. It's not some SWOT analysis that you're doing on a piece of paper trying to figure out the positive and negative. It's like, look, this is who you are, dude. This is where you're going. That's what it is. Um, now you can think about how you can do that, but
0: it makes lot of sense. I'm taking some of this from some of the notes that you had sent me. So for, Forever, as you said, for over 100 years, we've been told that dreams are elusive and need to be deciphered by an expert. So in regard to that, do you feel that... Um, we have the ability to decipher our own dreams, or do they need to be
1: guided? Well, I think there are a couple of levels of it. So, for example, you have a dream. First thing you got to do is remember it, right? Um, and that, that takes an effort, right? You get up, you go, oh, yeah, I had that. And let me see if I can remember. Yep, I'm okay, now I got the story. So the next thing you need to do is write it down. Why? Because as you write it down, you own it. It's now a story that lives in you the problem we become, come up against then is you know the human experience is a is a collective cooperative relational experience okay so when i tell a dream to you even if you don't even if you just listen to it even if you don't ask me any questions all of a sudden now i'm hearing this story i mean before i remembered it and i wrote it down right now i'm hearing this story and I've had this experience myself. It's like, as I'm telling somebody a dream, I go, whoa, wait a minute. I didn't feel that emotional impact before, right? So there are those three steps. And and having somebody listen to a dream, choosing somebody to listen to a dream is very important. Because what you don't want to do, you know, is go choose somebody who's got an agenda for you, you know, It's like, well, you should be doing this with your life, you know, and now I see this dream and it's telling me that you should be doing this with, no, 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 you don't want that. You want somebody who's just gonna listen to it and be curious and understand they don't know Mm -hmm. what the heck this thing means either, right? Sometimes that's tough to find, you know? Uh, So do you need an expert? No, I mean, I'm what I would call a frequent flyer, right? I I do this for a living. So I listen to dreams all day long, basically. Um, And that's useful. But it's not essential, you know. If you literally have your own anamkara, then that's who you tell your that dream. That works. To. How can we animate them? I mean,
0: what's the purpose of animating them, and, it, and maybe the process of a little bit of that, so I can understand, and they and my listeners can understand when you when you say animate the dream.
1: Um, well, let me go sort of give you the theoretical idea, and then maybe an example would be useful. Uh, <clears throat> so, uh, two examples. So, let's say you have a fight with your boss. Okay. And you come and you tell, you're telling your friend, well, I said this and he said that and blah, 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 blah. And the friend says, oh, okay. So exactly where in this conversation did you get pissed off? Or exactly where in this conversation did you start feeling like you were going to lose your job? Or so now we're expanding, we're animating that experience, we're giving it dimension where the person who had the fight is going, well, Actually, you know, I was pissed off before I had the conversation with him or whatever it was, right? So now we're we're animating that. We're we're, we're giving it... Because usually the story is two-dimensional. Two he said this, I said that, boom, 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 right? But now we have some context. Okay. So client had a dream that he was being chased by a tiger. Actually, he wasn't being chased. He looked into the forest and he saw this tiger coming straight at him. And he started running. He didn't know that he didn't feel like the tiger was going to try and eat him, but it was a tiger. It was like, get me out of here, right? And he hides behind this shed and then he looks around the corner, doesn't see the tiger, and he runs. Okay. The client didn't like the dream. Why not? Because he didn't like the idea that he was running away from this tiger. That's not who he saw himself as who he was, right? So we worked on that dream for a while. What's the thing with the tiger? What's your association with tigers? All that kind of stuff, right? And what he realized was that he was getting himself into a relationship with a woman who was different from all the other women that he'd been in a relationship with. And that he felt like there was this force coming at him. And he realized that there was a part of him didn't know any part of this, you know, on the one hand, he said, yes, I want a powerful woman. I want a woman who's smart, who will meet me, who will have a partnership with. And then she shows up and he, and there's part of him that's going, Whoa, let me out of here. Right now. That's the part of him that he is about to step away from. That's why he had the dream. Cause the dream was saying to him, okay, slick, you said you wanted this. There's a part of you right. that you got to deal with here because, There's a part of you that says, ah, man, I don't know, right? Now, we wouldn't have gotten there unless we had understood more about his association to tigers and running and that that didn't comport well with his own self-image and all that stuff, right? So that's how we animate. You know, we don't look in a book and say, oh, well, the tiger means, you know, feline force, it's a woman and, you know, whatever.
0: It means it's interpreted Uh, individually to each individual instead of something that was That's generalized basically in a book, for example.
1: Yeah. You know, what's interesting about that is that's where Jung was coming from. I mean, if you read him, that's what he says. The problem is we've deified the guy and all his writings. And so we've put this dictionary together of what stuff means because it's archetypical. And the answer is yes. And it's on my bookshelf. How does that archetype? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, uh, that's right. interesting actually right,
0: right. so how do we become dependent upon our own cognitive mind
1: well there's a theory that I read uh, about three years ago which made a lot of sense to me so there, there's something called confirmation bias and, and confirmation bias is you have a belief and I show you ten published studies peer review that demonstrate to you very clearly that your belief is wrong right You reject them. I come to you with a half-baked rumor from a dubious source that supports you. You go, yep, that's right. Okay? So this is something that was discovered in 1975 at Stanford University. They've been doing experiments on it ever since. And one of the things they said was, well, confirmation bias must be a failure of reason. Okay? Because why wouldn't you accept the studies, right? It's not reasonable. Okay. So these two guys came along, Mercy and Sperber. And they looked around, they said, you know, there's a lot of failure going on (laughs) around here. So let's look at this. And what they came up with was they said, actually, confirmation bias is not a failure of the rational mind. It's the purpose of the rational mind. Because we developed this ability to make an argument as we began building cooperative societies way back in the hunter-gatherer era, right? So we're going on the hunt. Frank doesn't want to go on the hunt. Frank wants to stay in the cave. So we could kill Frank, but then we'd be a man down, right? So we don't want to kill Frank. We want to convince Frank that he has to come. So we say to Frank, okay, you don't come, you don't eat. I mean, right? So that's an argument that says everybody has to go on the hunt. We could fast forward to today stop signs. We all agree you got to stop at the stop sign, it's a cooperative effort. And somewhere back when cars started proliferating, somebody said, okay, we got to get stop signs, right? And made the argument, why do we need stop signs? So we have this ability, which is useful to make arguments, but that's what we're doing. We're making arguments. We are not objectively evaluating data. That's why we developed the scientific method, right? There are ways around this. But the idea that we can use reason all the time to be "quote reasonable" just is not true. That's not what we develop. This part of that our makes brain makes a lot of for,
0: sense, actually. You know? Yes, it one hundred percent. So you suggested that that thinking has run its course as our sole mode of decision making, but you kind of just covered that. So
1: yeah, yeah, and I, I let me just say a little bit about that as it relates to what we're going through right now. Um, we are living in a time of uncertainty at pretty much every level of our experience, okay? It's not just the virus, and it's not just the economics, although I think we're just at the beginning of that wave. Literally, everything seems to be up for grabs. And as human beings, we don't like that. You know, we really, the idea here really is um, the level of uncertainty that we can tolerate as human beings, and. So let me let me just take the dream world and then expand it, right? So what I'm saying to you is well don't interpret the dream, live in the dream. Well living in the dream is uncomfortable because stuff comes up. You start feeling something. You don't know why you're feeling that, right? So you go back in for little doses. You know, you you get a feeling, it works on in you, you get a thought or an idea and then you Get out of the dream and go about your business. My sense, and this is not just myself, it's also my clients, is that we are in a time of tremendous prolonged uncertainty in the world right now. I mean, nobody really knows how this thing is going to work out. Uh, we're just at the beginning of an economic crisis that you know outstrips pretty much anything we've experienced before. We have major institutions in our government, regardless of where you're at on the left or the right, that don't look like they work anymore, okay? So it's, it's a very difficult time because it's uncertain. And the place everybody wants to go to is, okay, what are we going to do? How are we going to figure this out? You know, is it v shape, u shape, you know, reverse check marks, I don't know, whatever all these guys are telling us it's going to be. The fact of the matter is we don't know. And so what it's forcing us to do, some of us who are willing to enter into that uncertainty, is pay attention to other aspects of our experience. Your dreams, yeah, but also the fact that you don't know. What do you do every day when you get up and you don't know? And living in that, being forced to live in that, has, for some people anyway, allowed them to begin to appreciate the range of their experience as a human being, which let's face it, we're not going to think our way out of this. Right. Yeah, you know? It's not no, going
0: to happen. It, yeah. And, uh, yeah, I agree with you. It's a, very scary, it's a very scary future, actually, because we don't know what options are going to take place. We don't know where it's going to go and what it, the outcome is going to be because there are too many variables that can change that outcome and change yeah. it drastically. So, yeah. yeah, I can I can see that. How do we as an individual redefine our language in order to help make our dreams more accessible?
1: Well, I think if we can step away from the idea of interpretation, that would be useful. If we can understand that English as a language is primarily overwhelmingly made up of nouns, so that we are describing our experience as things, right? Right. I am upset. Well, okay. I kind of get the Outside parameters of that, but I don't know what, I don't know you're upset about what. I mean, I I don't know what that is. I don't know Mm -hmm. how you experience that. So, if we can be more descriptive to others and ourselves about what's going on, if we also stay away from as much as possible uh, jargon. So, what I say to people who take my course is look, you may be steeped in, I don't know, tarot or Reiki or whatever it is, but for the next six weeks, Here's the rule, you can't use any of that terminology. What you have to do is you have to say to yourself, okay, I'm the first person in the world to understand this idea, so I can't use the jargon, I have to explain it, I have to say what it means. So that we're not all saying, you know, you use a word, you use some jargon, and we all go, oh yeah, I know what that means. And meanwhile, everybody's got a different definition, nobody knows what the heck is going on, right? So I think those are the things that are really useful. If we can get out of this shorthand of describing things and lumping people into groups and all that kind of stuff, then that's a way through this. Then we can have human interactions. Then we can understand where somebody else is coming from. So, okay, if I give you a quick example? Oh, absolutely. Okay. So I don't don't usually do group work, but I was invited to this, uh, this meeting of community organizers. And it was somewhat contentious. And so, what I asked everybody to do was sit in a circle and I asked for a volunteer to tell a dream, and some brave soul told a dream, right? And so, then what we did is we went around the circle and everybody asked open ended questions, right? And then, after we kind of got a sense of what the story was about, everybody got to claim the dream. And this is not my, this is a, been around for 30 years or so. So you say at the beginning, if this were my dream, this would come up on me. Okay. So that exercise took about 20 minutes and the contentiousness went out of the meeting, right? Because Why? Because we had created this intimacy. Everybody was human. So now the different points of view were just that. They were different points of view. They weren't agendas. They weren't legal briefs. They weren't, I'm right, you're wrong they were, well, this is how I feel. This is how I'm seeing this. This is what I think should happen, right? And so, if we can do that, we can begin to have these conversations that are crucial for us to have at this point, you know? So, that's a way, I think, and it takes effort, right? Because it's so easy to say, I'm a progressive. I'm a conservative. I'm a blah 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 blah. Right, and now I'm in my group, and you're not in my group, and therefore I'm safe, and you're not. <laughs>
0: it doesn't get as You go on your side you know? of the room. I'll stay on my side of the room. Don't go over that line.
1: Right. Yeah. Exactly. Meanwhile, the ice caps exactly. are melting. You know. I mean. Exactly. <laughs> um,
0: I had come across something in uh, in your material that you said the soul is not in the body. The body is in the soul. Can you help me understand that?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's an Irish philosopher concept. I, I could never quite trace it back to who originally said it. But So there's actually a guy, somewhat of a horrible human being it turns out, but he was trying to measure the weight of the soul. And he had this scale and he kept trying to put people in on the scale who were about to die and he finally got one. And so he had some measure about how much the soul weighed. <laughs> And I tell the story because it's absurd, right? I mean, it's ridiculous. The idea of the Irish philosophers that the body is in the soul basically says, look, we have this experience. We have a soulful experience and we are manifesting that in this physical presence, right? But there's so much more (laughs) to who we are than our bodies. And God knows there's all kinds of scientific evidence now. We know that there are electromagnetic waves that extend out from the body. So there's even scientific evidence that says we are more than our bodies. Um, But it puts into perspective, again, this idea of thought, right? Well, we think this stuff up. Yeah, but it's in the context of our soul. And if we sort of accept that, then we've got a container. We've got a context in which to think. And it's also a humbling idea, right? Right. Which is guess what, you're you know you're not the smartest person in the room. As a matter of fact, you know you're just as you said before, like we're all on the bus. You know, it's like we're all in this together.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's fact. <laughs> How would you suggest we reclaim our stories to help us become the better version of ourselves?
1: Uh you know, the reason I'm hesitating is because usually what happens is there's a crisis. Now I don't know why this is the model you know maybe when i pass on we can have a meeting a design meeting like why does it have to be this right but usually stuff falls apart right and the stuff that falls apart is the result of you trying to figure out how to keep your whole life together and on track and this is who you are and all that kind of stuff and boom you know in some way shape or form it blows up now I don't know if there's a way to avoid that. I mean, one way to try to avoid that is humility, to understand that you're doing what you're doing with the awareness that you have. And guess what? There's always going to be more. And so if you have that mindset and you're willing to be disoriented, disorganized periodically, then maybe you... Maybe you avoid the big kaboom that usually gets people into some kind of a healing process. Um, That's one idea. Let me give you another one. So in the culture now, it's very popular and also accurate to say that we are all wounded. In some way, we are all wounded. And there are many times when people discover their wound, and that becomes what I would call the lie of the wound. So, for example, in the book, I talk about, you know, a boy who is told that he is loved, but he knows he's not loved because he gets his brains kicked in every day by his father and his mother says, we both love you, blah, blah, blah. So he grows up with this idea that saying I love you is a lie. Well, that doesn't work out so well when he gets into a relationship with a woman he loves, right? Because she says, well, I see you love me, but I want you to tell me. And so he has this reason, I can't do that. Well, that's the lie of the wound, okay? That's not, that's not the point here. So I use the metaphor of if you break a bone and that bone heals, the place where it is broken is stronger than the rest of the bone. That's your wound. Your wound's your gift. If you go back to those kids in that hospital, why was I, why was I there? I was there because I was that guy. My father beat my brains in, right? Now, those kids have been abused order of magnitude more than I had ever been but I got it. I understood it, right? And in some way, shape or form, that's how people come to me because you are attracted to someone who understands your wound because they got the same one, right? Or they have a version of the same one. So, the acknowledgement of that kind of humanity in all of us is the way that we can move forward as human beings, you know, rather than embodiment of a particular political philosophy and blah, blah, blah. It's like, well, wait a minute, you know, we're all in this pain and we all want the joy of stepping through it because that's what happens on the other side. So I think those are the ways that we can begin to, and and what's, you know, the problem with it is is people look at that and they go, yeah, but now what do we do? Well, just hold on with that, you know, that becomes obvious. You don't have to worry about what you're going to do, okay? The hard part is allowing yourself to feel.
0: That is a hard part. And you have a book that will help people to understand your process and how to kind of go through that, correct? Tell me about that, please.
1: Yes, I do. It's it's called dream. It's called dreaming in the twenty first century, an ancient experience in a new context. And so, for a couple of years, I had been making YouTube videos about various ideas about working with dreams. And I really, I mean, you can go watch. I think there's probably forty five of them at this point, but they're a bit of a hodgepodge, right? An idea would come up, I'd make a video. So what I did was essentially take most of those ideas and a couple of new ones and organized them in this book. And I wrote it to be read. I mean, it's 174 pages long and it's I think five by eight or five by seven. So it's the chapters are like three and four pages long because first of all, I want people to read it. I don't want it to be some theoretical thing. That, on you on say, my books on, on the book. shelf. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, and, it's also not a theory of everything. It's a series of ideas. It's like, check this out. See what comes up in you around this, right? You know, sex and dreams. Why do we have sex and dreams? You know, what are my clients dream about having sex with me? It has nothing to do with me. It has to do with the fact that I have I have am a part of a very intimate relationship that they are then using to tell themselves, hey, You want more of this, you want this in your life, this kind of relationship with somebody, right? So it's things like that to to sort of kickstart people in terms of thinking about uh, honoring their dream life. That's interesting. Tell me about your classes please and what you have to offer in that. It's six weeks. I initially did it for coaches, now it's for everybody. So what happens is there's a recorded lecture half-hour recorded lecture that you listen to before class. Then there's a 90-minute class, virtual class on Zoom, where we work, you know, because I'm a believer that the way you learn this is you do it. Um, And it'll be different ideas, you know, there's active imagination exercise and all that kind of stuff. And then you're paired up also with with a partner, and you get together in between class and you work on a dream, and you go back and forth. And, and that culminates into sort of a, a final assignment. And so there are assignments in the lectures. It's not a walk in the park. It's six weeks of sort of immersion, even though we only get together for 90 minutes. Um, and it's sort of built on the model. It's interesting you ask. It's built on the model of how I work. Because I say to people, look, I charge by the session because that's what we know, right? But I don't work by the session. And if I don't hear from my clients a couple of times in between sessions, I always say to them, look, you're wasting your money. I mean, this is, this is a relationship and it's a relationship with a part of you that's a little fragile, you know, because it hasn't had a lot of audience. So you got to nurture that. And I'm here for that, right? And, and the class is the same kind of thing. It's not just 90 minutes and listening to the recording. It's, okay, you're going to go here for six weeks. You're going to go into this idea of listening to your dreams, working with your dreams, and see what comes out That's the beautiful. other end.
0: How, I know you got them coming up in September. How often do you normally have classes?
1: Probably about four times a year, um, I think that's, yeah, it's about- How does somebody
0: get in years. touch with you or learn more about you and your services, including the classes?
1: Well, they can go on the website, which is my name, Will Sharon. They can buy the book, read the book. That'll tell them a lot about where I'm coming from. And then there are various ideas on the YouTube channel. But in terms of the class, the website is a place to go. You can register there. And, and uh, there's some pre-work to do. There's a questionnaire that I send out that will help me and your peer partner sort of Get the sense of who you are and where where you are in your yeah, life. I put so links
0: up to all of that stuff on yeah. the show notes and on my website.
1: Oh, thank the you so right much! You can I appreciate easy okay. um,
0: access to uh, finding both the book and the classes as well. So, any words of wisdom? <laughs>
1: words of wisdom. You know, we we've covered a lot of ground. I I think maybe the wisest thing that I have to offer is this idea that you're a lot greater in dimension than you think. And I emphasize that word think. And so over my desk, I'm not one of these guys who has, you know, signs all over the place, but over my desk is a quote from Bob Dylan. And it comes out of the movie Rolling Thunder, where he's in a bar and he's talking to John Baez. And she said, you know, I married this guy because I thought I loved him. And so Dylan says, and I'll, I'll keep it clean here, He says, thought will F you up every time. (laughs) And I think, as I said, I think, but my sense is there's a lot of truth in that, that if you're going to live your life inside your skull, it's going to be difficult, uh, more difficult than it has to be. And so just pay attention to this incredible array of experience that you have that isn't about thinking. It's amazing, right? Those are excellent
0: words of wisdom. Thank you very much for sharing your journey, your expertise, and your knowledge with us. I really appreciate this. It's been a fantastic conversation.
1: Uh, Well, thank you for having me. I really
0: appreciate it. This concludes our episode. Thanks for joining the conversation. I hope you really enjoyed it. You will find all the links for Will's books and his website info, as well as the course info in the show notes and on our website, www.beforeyougopodcast.com. That's www.beforeyougopodcast, all one word, .com. There you will find direct links and the in-depth show notes, as well as other resources, including direct links to obtain the books, his courses, and any information in regard to what's upcoming. Have a nice day, have a nice week, and thanks for listening.
1: One more thing before you go A unique conversation about life podcast is a creation of One More Thing Productions, established 2010, all rights reserved.